0: And welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now before our show this week I just want to say a very heartfelt thank you to everyone who subscribes to the channel. We get new subscriptions every day rising and also to all of you who donate too. Thank you very very much, it's hugely appreciated by us and I hope we continue to do you proud. Uh, My guest this week uh, is out of the usual run of people that we have on the channel, um, and all the better for it. Uh, He's a man who does something which I'm sure you will find very, very interesting. Joshua Humphreys is an author. He is the writer of comedy novels. Uh, He is a self-described traveller. And also, he's the founder of something called the New Cavalier Reading Society. And he's joining me now. He's in the Ukraine. He's joining me now. Um, Thanks very much for coming on, Joshua.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having
0: me. Uh, No, it's a a pleasure. Um, First of all, can you explain to me what is the New Cavalier Reading Society? So,
1: Functionally, it's a members only group dedicated to discussing humanity's most profound questions as explored by its most ingenious minds and uh, the way that translates to the real world is that I have these books called, uh, they're my commonplace books, four volumes thereof and they're not available to the general public and when you become a member I send them to you and then throughout a semester we all read the same uh, pages from those commonplace books and at the start of the week I pull four questions from the commonplace books, from the reading most often, questions advanced by the authors themselves, yep. and all through the week, we uh, try to answer those questions in our own time. And then we come together at the weekend, and I lead us through discussions of everything we've been reading.
0: So, you—I've noticed you have a, a, a massive following on I, a social media on Instagram. Um, is that how you communicate mostly uh, on social mm. media? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I. I I'm told to branch out, but I don't have the time or the energy to uh, use any other platform. So everything tends to go through Instagram.
0: Right. But with the Society, uh, why should people join it? What what is it? You know, why did you set it up? I set it up
1: as a way to share the commonplace books. They uh, they are such unique volumes. They contain, I think, something like 6000 quotations from over 1,200 different authors, and they range really from the very beginning of Western history up until the present day. And anybody who is vaguely interested in Western culture Mm -hmm. can get a much more uh, interesting and intimate look into what Western culture means by engaging with its questions.
0: Yes. So, in fact, you know, this uh, you, you, you mentioned, in fact, in, I, I've seen you, you've written that this is about really looking at Western culture before, as you put it, universities crushed it. Yes. How did they crush it? I think they I crush know. it through. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they, they crush it through, uh, well, first of all, by tainting it with a kind of original sin. Uh, the, they begin with certain premises such as Western culture is racist. And then they go around in circles trying to prove that Western culture is racist, and that's the sole filter through which they put uh, four thousand years of of Western culture.
0: Yes. So it is uh, basically. Did you sort of start this almost in a response to this current situation we're in? Because I mean, you know, it seems to me that Western culture is pretty much under attack. No, the. My view
1: of it under attack has only come into sharp focus the last two years,
0: yeah.
1: uh, particularly last year. But in 2017, when I started it, I was very much outside of that realm. And uh, the, more people that I've, the more people that have become members and the more people that have c- uh, come through the reading society, the more gaps I've found in knowledge and a greater inability to combat Western culture's enemies intellectually.
0: Yes. Where, where, did, uh, where did your interests come? Uh, you know, in in looking at all of this, so
1: yeah. So my itinerant aunt uh, was a spinster her whole life, and she would travel to Egypt every other year, to Venice in the intervening years. She had, uh, in, the only tapes she had on VHS were Indiana Jones, so that uh, <laughs> kind of instilled an early love of the excitement of history in me. And then at university, I have a history degree from the Trove University, and the first lecture I ever attended was on the French Revolution, and it was given by Professor Bill Murray, who I'm not sure if he's still alive, uh, but if he is, I would very much like to thank him. And he would stand in front of a huge undergraduate lecture theater and just speak on the French Revolution from memory for 55 minutes, moving in and out of French, English, German, Italian. He wouldn't translate for anybody. And by the end of these 55 minute lectures, you were just uh, enthralled by the excitement of of Western history, European history.
0: Yes. And that's something that's obviously stayed with you. Absolutely. I I
1: made a point of having him as my tutor uh, in all the subjects that he taught. And then uh, halfway through that degree, he was replaced as uh, the professor of, or the head of the uh, kind of Nazi department of the history faculty. Uh, his replacement was not of the same caliber, and so I had to seek uh, other intellectuals, if you will. But he, those you know, that year and a half has always stuck with me.
0: Yes, but you are. You are. Uh, you. You would uh, say that primarily you are a writer of comedy novels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, basically, what is a what would you call a comedy novel? Then, actually, Joshua, what what is that? A comedy novel
1: is a novel that's written with the sole intention to amuse, to make laugh. Yes. Uh, I started out as a stand up comedian and performing in my own plays at university. And then in my fourth year, I had this lightning bolt moment when I, I picked up a handful of dust by Evelyn Wall. Oh, yeah. And by the end of the first page, I knew that it was smarter and funnier than what I was doing. I was making frivolous, Monty Python kind of sketches. And I just knew that I had to be writing novels or that I had to incorporate the comedic element. So I I kind of, I pitched them as, as though you're reading a sitcom or uh, a Will Ferrell film on paper.
0: Right. And, uh, I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about, you have talked about your education there, but where are you originally from
1: then, Joshua? Melbourne, Australia, from the criminal classes of (laughs) outer suburban
0: Melbourne. Right. Okay but you lead, uh, it seems like, quite a, a nomad existence. Is, is that or is that wrong? Nomad
1: sca- is it's a loaded word nowadays. I see myself as an exile. I, even now I can't return to Australia, it's illegal. Uh, but I... Well, first, for economic reasons, I had to escape to, the, to Southeast Asia because uh, for four or five years I wasn't making enough money to live anywhere else, and I fell in love with that region of the world. And uh, at the moment, I have to, I have to move around at the time because of usually visa restrictions. Yes. As an Australian, you can maximum stay in three, for three months at a time in most places. So I right. tend to uh, fit around.
0: Yes. And uh, you sort of take people with you, isn't that right to say? I mean, I, I, virtually speaking, you know. I, tr-
1: I try to. I have a, a year, for, for three years, I ran a, a Venice tour that I built. Uh, in situ in Venice and then last year I turned that into a uh, virtual tour so that's that can take people to Venice Uh, and yeah I'm doing the same for ancient Greece this year planning on spending the rest of the year in
0: Greece. These are the very places that are the very foundations if you like of our our civilization I mean I was very interested in one uh, it's probably not the motto of the Cavalier Reading Society but I don't know maybe it is but you wrote it. Only the wise are free.
1: Mm, it's a quotation from Cicero. Yeah, uh, "Solum sapientem esse liberum." And I just I, I don't uh, subscribe to kind of civilizational freedom. Uh, I more subscribe to the later Stoic idea that it is wisdom that equals freedom. Right. And so, and Heraclitus said, uh, "Wisdom." is, is uh, being able to see the one thing that threads through all other things. Yes. I, I just feel as though in order to be free from all temporal uh, intellectual constraints, you have to be able to see the larger picture. Right. And that's what I try to impart.
0: But we don't really see, or rather should I say, freedom now in that sense has sort of become rather perverted in, in the sense that now it's seen in, almost entirely as a matter of choice, isn't it? It's seen as having choice in life. But it's not really about that, is it?
1: No, that's a uh, kind of capitalist consumerism conception of freedom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't at all ascribe to. Right, right. So you pretty much plough a a lonely farrow, would it be right to say? It would. It's a very
1: lonely (laughs) life. Not not lonely life. It's a a solitudinous life. Yes. But uh, I'm well aware that in order to do the amount of work that I do, and to write a novel a year, I cannot have distractions like large groups of
0: friends. Right. Or, uh, yeah. Right. But I mean, what's interesting, I mean, obviously, you know the sort of things that we've covered on this channel, we, we, the, the, the big preoccupations that we've had. And it seems to me that um, actually providing some platform or some association or society for people to learn about things that once they might have taken for granted is extremely valuable. I mean, do you see yourself as, you know, in some way providing a kind of service like that? I mean, do you, you know, is that what motivates it?
1: It definitely motivates, what motivates me is to uh, have people cherish what they do not know they should be cherishing. Right. And to value things that, we are either on the verge of losing or that we've already lost. And to value the means that we might uh, have the will to recover them at some stage.
0: Yeah. Do you think, uh, I mean, when we, you know, again, one of the things we've discussed endlessly on here, unfortunately, but we have to, is the sort of, you know, the woke attack. Uh, Is this something that you have a strong view on? Because frankly, from what I can see, it seems entirely... Uh, well, first of all, hugely ignorant of the kind of things that you talk about, for starters, mm. but then also dismissive or indeed utterly hostile too.
1: I didn't know what woke was until last year. Right. Uh, but it's been, a ver- it's been a baptism of fire, figuring out what it is, yeah. figuring out strengths and weaknesses. And I firmly believe that in the face of woke, if you will, if you, in the face of woke arguments, Reason and logic is the only thing that can stand up. Right. But if they attack people who do not know what they're talking about, or who have the kind of uh, prejudiced background against what they're talking about, we don't stand a chance. Right.
0: So how do you confront them then with reason and logic?
1: Uh, well, I do. It's, it's all about knowing. I don't like to take an adversarial position, no. but it's all about knowing your enemy. Right. So. In the, in the reading society, when we have those four questions each week, uh, very occasionally, the reading will be preoccupied with one subject, such as ideology, yeah. or Marxism, or the Vietnam War. And for that week, I would just make the focus a kind of lecture that I give, and so I can explain to people what Marxism is, where it came from, what it does, what its intellectual tricks and falsehoods are. The same with ideology. And I direct, but I also direct them uh, to much uh, large body of wider reading, where they can find out as much as they possibly can. The best writer on ideology I've ever read is Michael Oakeshott. Yes. If you, uh, the chance of you meeting somebody who's ever heard of Michael Oakeshott, uh, minimal, I find. Right. But just to and just to uh, be able to tell someone to read Michael Oakeshott, I find that I consider that invaluable in itself.
0: What about someone like Roger Scruton?
1: Roger Scruton, uh, I've never read him on ideology. I try to stay away from uh, books that uh, purposefully espouse the cause of conservatism. Yeah. Because I, I think that it has a kind of it has a bad name in public discourse. And so, if you identify yourself as a conservative, yeah, you're very likely to immediately have your views dismissed. Yeah. And so we I mean we have read On Conservatism by Sir Roger, Roger Scruton. Uh, but I do tend to direct people to authors who do not kind of overtly identify it as political right. in one way or the other. Right. John John Ruskin is yeah. the there are two authors, John Ruskin and Nietzsche. And just directing people to read Ruskin or to read Nietzsche, neither of them identify as conservative, although yeah. Ruskin does is in his autobiography. But he claims it's a Homeric conservatism. Uh, but if you just get people reading those authors, they will automatically come across values that are anti-woke, that can fight woke, and that don't plant you as a political conservative. But yeah. you will find that the things that you value align very closely with uh, small c conservatism.
0: What do you think has been the effect of the whole pandemic and COVID on, you know, on our civilization. I know this, that is like a massive question for a whole volume, I'm sure. But it's not been a good one, has it?
1: No. It's the, the, I've always had a, a kind of inherent faith in humanity, in its goodness and intelligence, and the pandemic destroyed that. Really? Pissed, off, pissed on its ashes. I uh, have never seen so many people so readily relinquish so much freedom in the space of a few months, it, right. it made me nauseous.
0: Yeah, it's particularly, isn't it? Australia, your home country, it was it was qu- it was quite extraordinary as well, wasn't it, in its restrictions? Is
1: is presently quite extraordinary. I have uh, actually informally renounced my citizenship. I no longer identify with that country or its people, especially not with its government. They, uh, it's illegal to fly home. You face uh, mandatory imprisonment for two weeks if you do fly home. Uh, If you fly home from India at present, the maximum penalty is 33,000 pounds for doing so.
0: It's extraordinary. What is it like where you are at the moment from the point of view of COVID?
1: Ukraine is fine. uh, There are thousands of people in the streets. Restaurants are open. They had cases are falling, but there's still I think around 5,000 a day um, I I have a theory I'm working on that the more hard act, the more actual hardship a country has faced, the less likely they are to overreact to yeah, COVID. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, you know, Ukraine's history is riddled with oppression and misery. Mm. What's the? How can a virus do any worse than Russia?
0: Yeah. I think actually that's a very interesting point because if you look at people are talking a lot about India at the moment, um, uh, it might well be you know. There are economic reasons as well for the number of cases there. Um, but at the same time, it's maybe a different attitude that the people have. As you say, they have been nearer to life and death. I mean, isn't this really what actually shows the, the extraordinary sort of l- luxuriousness of the West? They, they can't handle it anymore. Is it? Do you think that's right? The,
1: the luxuriousness, but also, a I guess, a long-term denial and shelving of death we don't like to think about it. We don't think it exists. We we hide our dead as soon as they're gone. Uh, but India, of course, has a, a very influential and transcendental religion. So I imagine they, they, they don't mind death too much because they don't think it's all. Cool. I'm very wary of overstating the case when it comes to COVID.
0: Yes. But the thing is, but it, nevertheless, you see, you, you introduced an interesting point there about, again, about religion is that somehow if there is a religious framework in the society, the attitude to this kind of thing will be slightly different. It doesn't mean to say that people are, you know, going to be affected less, but their attitude will be different. Whereas you, as you're quite right, we've sort of discarded, at least officially, we've discarded religion in that way. So therefore, we have to face that, my God, this might mean oblivion.
1: I yeah I we I, we've not only discarded religion and any uh any value in death we've also uh how do I phrase it we've also numbed or kind of diluted our conception of living to the point where it is so uh, inane and uninteresting that we need it to go on for as long as possible in order for it to have been considered a full life right I, I genuinely consider that the that anybody who is living their life as fully as they possibly can at any one moment does not consider death to be the worst of all the outcomes. Right. That's uh, taken directly from uh, ancient Greece, but it's something that uh, really I cannot overstress the importance yes. of but nobody
0: listens. <laughs> do you do you actually live yourself therefore by uh, what ancient What was written in in ancient greece and by ancient greek authors i mean do you think that therefore that there is more to be got from them than there is for example by from a a modern self-help book
1: infinitely so a modern self-help book is first of all probably written by somebody who needs self-help and external help (laughs) Um, the, the ancient greeks didn't write in order to make money they wrote to illustrate their way of life yeah. And uh, particularly the ancient heroic conception of living is uh, when, I, when I first made sense of it from uh, the best author on the, the heroic conception of life is uh, Werner Jaeger yeah. or, or C.M. Bauer. They elaborate and uh, illustrate the heroic conception so clearly that it made sense to me that that's what I have been arguing for for years already yeah. without actually knowing.
0: Yeah. Just one thing I want to ask as well, actually, uh, Josh, you, you, know, you, you travel around a lot, although, of course, I should imagine that's quite relatively, might be curtailed at the moment. But, um, you know, you, you live this life and you write. Um, we, had, uh, we have a writer here, a journalist called David Goodhart, and he, you might have heard of him, but he, he was looking at Brexit and he came up with these two groups that we have now in our kind of societies. Australia, Britain, America, anywheres and somewheres. Somewheres uh-huh. were people that basically drew a hell of a lot from their surroundings, from their locality and their nation and their family, and anywheres were the increase the people who essentially saw themselves entirely in an international context, um, and you know somehow had very weak uh, links to their locality. Uh, you seem to me to be Possibly a somewhere in an anywhere's body. Uh, <laughs> would you say that is correct?
1: A somewhere in an anywhere's body. Perhaps. I, uh, I don't want to get into the Freudian uh, analysis <laughs> of the somewhere and the anywhere. But I imagine a lot of what I do is a reaction against my Australian upbringing, yeah. feeling uprooted. I had very strong Scottish roots to oh. my grandparents. But when you grow up so far removed from it, uh, you might be likely to attempt to recover it. And that is how I see Europe. Uh, I used to consider Australia an outpost of European culture. I don't anymore, but uh, perhaps that's why I do what I do.
0: uh, just on this point, uh, do you think it's, it's not just something about your change of attitude, is it? Australian society, are you saying, actually has changed?
1: Absolutely. If you, I, mean, I my grandparents are dead, but they, they would not recognize the country that uh, is currently floundering underneath Indonesia. I consider it, I don't, I, have, I haven't studied it at any great length, and I don't have a uh, detailed hypothesis, but it, I think Australia used to be a European uh, outpost in Asia. It is now a, out, it's an Asian outpost.
0: They've uh, mm. Mm. flipped, if you will. Yes. Well, look, Joshua, what do people do if, if they want to join the New Cavalier Reading Society? Uh, can you tell them, tell them what they, how they should go about it? Where should they go?
1: Uh, so if you go to my website, joshuahumphreys.com, or the Reading Society's website, newcavalierreadingsociety.com, uh, and you click on Join, there's a set of criteria that pops up. And if you can if you meet those criteria... Welcome you within our ranks. Right. Otherwise, uh, find me on Instagram, send me a message, and I can discuss it with you at at more greater length.
0: And when's the next novel going to be coming out?
1: Hopefully December. I'm in Ukraine to work on it. Half its its characters are Ukrainian emigrants to Australia, so I'm here researching all the Ukrainian crazy that I can find. Right. Uh, I'm in Greece for the next three months to write its first and second drafts, and hopefully by December. It shall be ready.
0: Well, look, you know, thank you very much for breaking. I know you write in the morning, don't you? So thank you for breaking into your schedule um, and talking to us. Um, All the very best. I think it's fantastic what you started um, and much needed at the moment too. Uh, Whatever your politics, I think it's much, much needed. Um, Thanks very much indeed, Joshua. Thank you, Peter. It's It's a pleasure. Good, good. Uh, That's it for this week and uh, we shall see you next time. In the meantime, do... As I said, please uh, continue to subscribe, won't you? Thank you, bye-bye.